so hello. <laughs> so tonight I'm going to talk in essence about the fantastic legacy of in inspiration, um, initiation and enterprise that we have within uh, the Tree Ratna Buddhist community and order. I'm going to be exploring what I have found to be a moving and galvanizing tradition of exemplification of what it is to be Buddhist in the 21st cent century. I'll be trying to unpack Bhante's translation on the teachings of the Bodhisattva ideal and the Noble Eightfold Path how they can be interpreted for us here in the Manchester Sangha in 2016. And I will be looking particularly at right livelihood and right vision. So this talk is based largely on two significant figures um, in our personal Sangha history, two human beings whose presence and influence still shapes who we are as a Sangha in the world today. Sangharachita, our founder and teacher, who I will be referring to as Bhante, and Dr. Bhimrao Ramji Ambedkar, the social spiritual revolutionary from India whose work we continue to do through the Triratna Sangha in the Maharashtra region and through the work of the Indian Dhamma Trust. I will share how the Right Livelihood Kula are now acting to bring to life another thread of Buddhism in action in exploring the foundations of a new business. So to begin with, a re reminder of the Bodhisattva ideal. Bhante's vision for the movement and, and order as a force of good in the, the world. And a direction for us, for our practice to be as focused on the transforming of the world as of ourselves. He describes the Bodhisattva ideal as the Buddhist dream, our daydream, if, if you like, and the ultimate vision of our Buddhist life. To transform not only ourselves, but the life and the world around us into a pure land where there is no pain, no loss, no bereavement of any kind. It is a place where there is no age, no sickness, and above all, no death. A place where there is peace, no conflict, no war, nor even any misunderstanding. Food comes dropping down from trees, and clothing just miraculously comes upon you whenever and wherever you need. There is nothing to do but to sit on your blue, red and golden lotus at the feet of the, the Buddha and just study the Dharma. And to top it all off, Bhante says that especially for those of us in the UK, 
In the pure land, we're told that the weather is always perfect. So when I came to Tree Ratna, or as it was then the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, the Bodhisattva ideal and the new voice, a new voice in the West were the two first books that I read. And I immediately felt drawn into the vision of just maybe it was possible to have no suffering in the, the world. I had been working as a nurse in the community at that time for about 11 years. So I was familiar with the many faces of human pain and de- demise. So this dream of being part of an energy for the good, of our actions as Sangha coming as an expression of a super-personal force, appealed to my then-fatiguing sense of hope that we could ever surmount the human capacity to cause and experience pain. Bante's vision for a new society to counter this tendency and to create a pure land not only in the future but in this life has galvanised me ever since. And yet there are times when even with my idealistic vision it can feel a somewhat redundant notion in a world of what seems like ever-increasing economic polarisation where disparate differences of health and wealth proportion can be witnessed between peoples in the same society, let alone peoples across different countries and continents. We see this explicitly in Manchester. With the presence of people who are homeless, people who have chronic substance abuse, in the streets and doorways around the centre, living their lives right alongside those who use fiscal, political and religious power to exploit and manipulate communities to achieve their own agenda. So while I and we may have confidence in Bante, the Buddha's teachings and the lineage of teachers that we have on our going for refuge tree. How can we stay motivated to keep trying to make sense of this faith in the Buddha Dharma and translate it into effective Dharmic action in our everyday? How do we make this teaching of the Bodhisattva ideal meaningful for us today this evening, when most of us have yet to become more awake to how things really are and are, very, are still very much in the basic but important process of examining our day-to-day actions against the touchstone of our five or ten precepts. So lots of questions and where do we start to answer them? I thought I'd start by sharing with you that sitting here, sharing this talk, is probably one of my clearest ideas of being in the hell realm. 
having experienced bodily pain due to being an amputee for nearly 40 years, I have subconsciously learned that if I hold my breath in certain ways, I can reduce the pain that I experience to some de degree. However, that same breath hold holding also means at times I can frequently stutter. So perhaps I should have asked Artavardin for double the space to share this talk with, with you. Having said that, <laughs> you can perhaps imagine some of my hesitancy to share this talk this evening. So I've been spending much time reflecting on why I do this talk and why I say yes. And I realised two things. I'm able to sit here because of example. The example of not only friends and teachers who have also stood or sat here in Manchester, but also on retreat, on festival days, and of course through, through free Buddhist audio. In Dharmic terms, I feel like I've been given the gift of dana, of generosity, and especially fearlessness from 49 years of other more experienced Dharma practitioners and feel a huge swathe of gratitude for that particular storehouse of treasures. Which leads me to my second realisation, that there is a possible second name for this talk, and that is from a greater lamp, as in the section of offerings to the Buddha, the line is actually from his greater lamp, referring to the Buddha Shakyamuni. But over the last 13 years, I have witnessed how this gift of example and fearlessness is not isolated to just me on this one occasion. It happens every day. It is Sangha. And I feel it is what is at the heart of engaged Buddhism. Every one of us is a lamp from which someone else at some point will light their own flame of inspiration from. I find that a beautiful image for the Sangha. So on a wider scale then, Bante's choice to stay in India after the, the war, to study, travel with his teachers, to commit himself to sharing the Dharma across the same ter ter terrains as the Buddha is an extraordinary example for me, for us as Buddhists of Pratitya Samutpada, of the right conditions coming together at the right time, of the human capacity to open and transform one's life through a sense of trust and confidence in other power. Bante somehow made the transition from childhood of physical frailty to a young man throwing away all physical comfort to tread the path of uncertainty as a shramanera, to wander in India before settling in Kanampong for some time. The other side of his example is that in transforming himself, he subsequently became empowered to offer conversion and guidance to hundreds of thousands of people in what used to be called the untouchable com 
Unity to continue the work of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar. So we have this wonderful example of a Buddhist life well lived right at our fingertips. And he is still writing and sharing his experience and understanding of the Dharma. And he is still sharing his gratitude and sense of importance that we continue to learn, not only from his experience, but also from the Indian Sangha as a whole. And of course, vice versa. In researching for this talk, I get a real sense that Bhante and Sabuti, who has subsequently led many Sangha and Order events in India, keep emphasising the point of tree Ratna as one Sangha with one vision. Bhante describes us as a bird with two immense wings, one being the eastern wing, with, a more, with more of a focus on social transformation, and the other being the western wing, with more of a focus on psychological transformation. His call seems to be for us, particularly in the West, to ensure that we practice with more of a balanced perspective of both of these wings. That we look just as much to our brothers and sisters in the East as we do to each other. For us to also simply bear witness to the different conditions of practice and the unfurling of their Buddhism in action, which is phenomenal given the conditions that they work with. So I want to spend a few moments now describing those conditions because I feel they portray how right vision can ignite a life of intense clarity of purpose despite what can only be called appalling conditions. So Dr. Ambedkar was born in the late 1800s into the untouchable community, so-called because they were the people who often did the work so necessary to maintain civilised society. Historically, they were the people who removed the carcasses of dead animals and human beings off the streets of the old settlements and were required to live outside the walls of their villages and towns so they did not pollute the other people and environment. The time was entrenched by the Hindu caste system, given credos by its origins in the Hindu Vedic scriptures. These dictated that people were born into their caste due to the Hindu understanding of karmic actions. This is not karma as we understand it but can be seen as rather a religious mechanism to provide a sense of structure and control over a huge population of different tribes and pagan religions, including Buddhism. The untouchable community were considered to be outside of the caste system, to be subhuman, and to this day continue to be fully, to continue to be without for legal representation. Ambedkar was born into the Maha category of untouchable 
ability that required his co community to wear a spittoon around their neck and a broom around their waist. This was to prevent their saliva and footprints from polluting the air and ground. It was also the time of the British Raj, who enlisted men from Ambedkar's co community, meaning his family did have sound accommodation, food and education, a privileged position in those times. But Ambedkar's label as an untouchable meant he was prohibited to sit at a desk and eat the same food and drink the same water as his fellow students. Instead, he had to bring a sack from home to sit upon the floor with. He had to wait to be given food and water by a specifically assigned bearer who would pour the water from a great height to ensure that they and the water did not become polluted. I don't know about you, but I find this idea that someone can be polluting just by their mere presence painful. Despite this degradation and humiliation, Ambedkar became a very accomplished student. He was the first student from the untouchable community to pass into college life in India. And when he did so, his teacher gave him his first Buddhist text. He also received sponsorship from the Maharaja who governed the land at that time. Whatever motivated Ambedkar, Bedka, his personal vision saw him through many years of study in economics and law. He became a barrister and eventually the law minister of India, where he succeeded in writing the Indian constitution. Also, through rallying with mostly Hindu politicians, he raised awareness for his co community for some time before finally choosing to leave behind what he had found to be an explicitly corrupt political system. This was the time he chose instead to turn his efforts fully to what would become his vision. The mass conversion to liberate his community and I, uh, from the brutal constraints of Hindu society. And I say community but what I am referring here to is approximately 100 million people. That's over the total population of the UK. When Dr. Ambedkar and Bante finally met, he was not only a champion against inequality and abuse of his community, he was also a father of five children, married to his second wife after the natural death of his first and building his own home in Mumbai. So here was this man, incredibly accomplished in India, a barrister in England with an economics doctorate from the States, meeting this other man accomplished in a different way, in the way of the Dharma. Ambedkar was over 60 years old and Bante was barely 30. I have this image of them meeting and in, descri in describing the first time he met Ambedkar, Bante betrayed this fierce and formidable character who was challenging and yet 
visionary. Knowing what we do of Bante through his autobiographies and through meeting him, I can imagine that they found in each other a sense of being met intellectually and through their vision for revival of Buddhism in India. And though perhaps their original reasons for doing so were different, circumstances would ultimately bring their motivation into a spiritual friendship of mutual respect and with a clear regard for a common goal, the liberation of the untouchable community through the conversion to Buddhism. In his talk to the LBC in 2006, at the 50th anniversary of the very first conversion, Bante describes how Ambedkar asked him to officiate the conversion. With great humility, Bante encouraged him instead to seek the support of the the lead lead Buddhist monk at that time to, to do so. Perhaps he was aware of the social and po- political standing that that would cre- create. So, so Ambedkar followed his advice and Bante proceeded with his own plans, which meant that when the mass conversion, the first one, was arranged for the 14th of October 1956, Bante was already teaching elsewhere and could not attend. However, some days later, he describes in his memoir, Signs for Golden Wheel, his feelings around this time. And I've paraphrased bits of it to, uh, to make it more succinct for the purpose of tonight. I knew that it was essential for me to be on my way and that I could not spend more than a few days with my Bombay friends. I did not hear an inner voice. It was simply that I knew and accordingly fixed my departure for the 5th of December. I arrived in Nagpur at 1 o'clock on the 7th of December and settling in, there was a sudden commotion in the yard outside. Three or four members of the Indian Buddhist society burst into the little outhouse. Baba Saheb Ambedkar was dead. He had died in Delhi the previous night. And the society's downtown office was besieged by thousands of grieving, stricken people. Deeply moved by the sight of so much anguish and despair, I realised that for me at least this was no time to indulge in emotion. Ambedkar's Followers had been Buddhist for only seven weeks and now their leader had been snatched away. I therefore delivered a vigorous and stirring speech. I exhorted my audience to continue the work that he had so gloriously begun. In the course of the next four days I addressed nearly 30 mass meetings besides initiating about 30,000 people into Buddhism. My own spiritual experience during this period was most peculiar. I felt that I was not a person, but an impersonal force. I felt hardly any tiredness. 
when I left Nagpur, I felt quite fresh and rested. So since this time, since uh, 1978, our Sangha has continued to train hundreds of thousands of such men and women in, in India, in the Dharma, to the point of ordination, through the Indian Dharma Trust. Half of the total number of our order members in Tri Ratna live in India. And we have over 1,500 mitras training for ordination. But there are n- not enough preceptors and order members to support them. So the trust is raising funds to, f- to, f- to facilitate this work. And uh, if we can get it working, then we have a short film now to illustrate why this is so important. So the untouchable community, as we've heard, is now called the Dalit community. Dalit being translated into broken. So they have become known as the community of the broken. Perhaps this is why Amala Vadra in the film suggested that a better name could simply be New Buddhists. There has been political change since Bhante's time in India and Ambedkar's death in 1956. But socially there is still a mountain range of what Ambedkar called a veritable change of horrors for the Dalit community. So another example of another kind, as mentioned, is the plight of women from the community not allowed to marry outside of their community the cases of rape by men from the caste system continue to be prolific and are rarely investigated by the judicial system Arundhati Roy in her brilliant commentary on Ambedkar which I fully recommend having a read uses the phrase for this adjunct in the system. Love is polluting, rape is pure. She goes on to describe a whole series of examples of vilification of the Dalit community in contemporary India. And I will share one example and give you warning that it is graphic. But I have included it because it portrays so vividly and accurately the complexity of some of the social and political wrangling that Ambedkar had to face. In this immense forest of wrong views and unethical behaviour towards these people, this people that continues to this day. So Roy describes the case, uh, the case of a 40-year-old woman called Sue Rekha, whose family had been part of the conversion, so she was educated more so than her husband and, went and functioned as the head of the family. Her sons had been to college and her daughter was 17 and 
finishing high school. Sureka and her husband bought a plot of land in the state of Maharashtra. It was surrounded by farms belonging to people within the caste system higher. The village Panchayat, who is tra uh, traditionally um, chosen by the local community and considered to be wise, refused to allow Sureka to rebuild her home into a brick house and to connect it to the, to the local electricity circuit on the basis that the Dalit community were not considered to have the right to aspire to a good life. The family were not allowed to irrigate their fields with the water from the canal or draw water from the public well. The villagers tried to build a public road through, the, through their farmland and to drive bullock carts and herd their cattle loose on their crops. When Sureka complained to the police, they paid no attention. And, and as a warning to her, the villagers attacked a relative and left him for dead. So she filed a further complaint. And this time arrests were made. But the perpetrators were released on bail immediately. That same evening, 70 of the villagers, men and women, arrived in tractors and surrounded the family's house. Sureka's husband, who was out in the fields at the time, heard the noise and ran back to see the mob attacking his family. He ran to the nearest village and through a relative called the police. They did not come. The mob dragged Surika, her daughter and two boys out of the house. The boys were ordered to rape their mother and sister. And when they refused, their genitals were mutilated and they were eventually lynched. The mother and daughter were gang raped and beaten to death. The four bodies dumped in a nearby canal where they were found the next day. The immediate response of the media was to report that Surika was at fault. She had, she had had an affair, so hence maybe her punishment. But soon there were mass protests by large Dalit communities which created a tide of awareness across India and eventually the legal system recognised that a crime had in fact been committed. In this case, perpetrators, six of them, were sentenced to death. But the judge refused to class the, the crime as a race crime. This common event means that opportunities to gather evidence of human rights violations against the Dalit community are often lost. So to repeat what has already been shared, Ambedkar felt that the way forward for his people was not so much through politics or education, but through faith and re religion. He felt especially Buddhism would provide what he called the universal morality, which protects the weak from the strong, which provides common models, standards and rules 
which safeguard the growth of the individual. It is what makes liberty and equality effective. This is why then, to completely disassociate from the Hindu caste system became Ambedkar's efforts until he died. It is why our support of the Indian Dhamma Trust and our presence as a Buddhist movement in India is still relevant and a thriving example of our collective practice towards the Bodhisattva ideal. So Ambedkar spent decades studying the economy, laws and religion of India before arriving at the conclusion of conversion as a gateway to freedom. Similarly, in Britain, Bhante spent decades living, studying and practicing the Dharma in India before returning to the then 1960s culture of the UK. I wonder if he could see then, as it were, the canvas of British society with fresh eyes. By this time, he had had a profound knowledge and practice of the Dharma and had witnessed and continued to facilitate Ambedkar's vision for several years. An immense energy and vision for sharing the Dharma in the West in a way that was truly meaningful and relevant was beginning to be forged. So if the Dalit community were disempowered through social disenfranchisement, I wonder if in the West it is the industrial revolution that has in so many ways disempowered British society. With mass industry came fragmenting of family structures. Individuals who became successfully successful and financially better off were often those travelling further afield from their natural support systems. It may, but it may not be as apparent as wearing spittoons or explicitly c- corrupt judicial systems, but the despair and felt social dislocation that people express when suffering psychological and mental illness seems to be our version of suffering in the West. Individualism and, and meritocracy seem to have become a stagnating port of, of societal views. This seems to have evolved against the facade of largely conservative and labour politics. While they were fighting over rhetoric, we seem to have become en masse as a society at best numbed and at worst disinterested in the evident social issues and tragedies in our own villages, towns and cities. So that what we can now bear witness to is a mental health epidemic. This was warned about two decades ago when I was completing my own nurse training, but has now become fully fledged. An example of this is the sad case three weeks ago a child of a friend tragically felt the only option open to him was to take his own life. He was 21 years old, a student and socially popular. 
Suicide is, I think, one significant example of how suffering plays out in the West. It is the single most identified cause of male death of all ages in the UK. And 76% of all suicides. I was raised in the 1970s in this era of meritocracy, green and common protests and feminism. But it was also the era of psychology, of Carl Jung, of Joseph Campbell, of understanding the personal and public myth of what it was to be human. In the movement, we began to mark ourselves against the Myers-Briggs test. And as a society, we were allowed to spend time learning to analyse and develop a language for our internal landscape. But when our political protests have been largely ignored and we are faced with such distressing mental health statistics, I can't help but think we have missed something fundamentally important in our society. And clearly, it is the male population that are particularly suffering in this area of mental health in this instance. It is estimated that 12 men a day will take their own lives. That's huge. So when we talk of transforming ourselves and and the world, this is part of what we are seeking to transform and transmute. So now to how this legacy that we've started to explore of inspiration, initiation and enterprise can can meet this cry for help in the West as well as in the East. So one way is right livelihood. It is the fifth aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the first stage of the path that turns us from just focusing on our own transformation and asks us to look to what needs to be transmuted within our society. Along with the Bodhisattva ideal, This practice of right livelihood is one of Bhante's earliest and most persevering teachings. He sees it as an important way to bring about spiritual transformation, both personally and collectively. As we work together, we shine a flame of example for each other, but also a light that illuminates all those dark recesses We would prefer no one sees, including ourselves. When we live and work in such close proximity, there is ultimately no escape from our samskaras, both the negative and the positive. Over time, the facades of our personalities drop away and we are simply revealed. And there it is the example we set for each other and by which we influence the Sangha as if by osmosis. So it's up to each of us to decide in what way we want to influence the Sangha. The Right Livelihood Cooler in Manchester have been looking at its own sphere of of influence 
the Manchester Sangha, our networks of spiritual friendships across the UK and within our worldwide Sangha. We've been inspired by Bante's vision for the new society and the aspect of right livelihood. Our individual and collective vision has been galvanised by the 60th anniversary of the first mass conversion that we will celebrate in October this year. And we've come up with an idea for a business and we're just in the process of a feasibility study to test it out. So so far we've identified three of us that are passionate about taking this business forward. They are myself, Michael Proctor, who's downstairs I think, (laughs) and Sundeep. We are three individuals who agree that the cooler is just one expression of our individual and collective going forth to the three jewels. In trying out this idea for a business, we are simply giving something a go, experimenting if you like. What right livelihood means now in 2016? And here is what we've dreamed and envisioned. One business, transcontinent, with one team in Maharashtra in India and one team in Manchester, designing and producing t-shirts for Triratna Centre's initiatives, as well as other local ventures. We want to explicitly lay the dharmic foundations of this business with any agencies external to the Sangha that we work with, graphic designers, banks, printing companies. This way, we'll be introducing something different into the conventional world. Two years ago, when I was trying to set up my own company and talking to the bank manager for a business account and loan, I explicitly shared that this business was going to be a right livelihood. That meant also explaining to him that the three jewels were at the centre of my life and outlining how the business was going to be a supportive condition for that lifestyle. Surprisingly, he didn't laugh or look bemused. He was actually quite interested that there was such a a notion. And despite my limited business prowess, he readily supported the start of my enterprise. And we envisaged the same for the t-shirt business. We have already approached graphic designers, printing companies and and distributors, explicitly telling them that this is a right livelihood, that its purpose is to provide a context for spiritual practice, that it will also benefit the local communities and or charities, that this initial batch of t-shirts will raise funds for the refurbishment of the ground floor of the Manchester Buddhist Centre and for the Indian Dharma charities. The feasibility study is running with just one batch of t-shirts. We have invested our own money and the centre trustees have lived up to, to their name and have agreed to contribute some of the much needed funds. The t-shirt design has been produced to commemorate Dr. Ambedkar's birthday, the 60th 
anniversary of the first mass conversion in India to celebrate the 20th anniversary of our centre and of course the ground floor of project. The three words, learn, grow, love, echo the sentiments of Dr. Ambedkar's revolutionary call for liberty, education, liberty, for the Dalit community. The three jewels are represented by Avadra, Utpala, flower, and fire. They are held within three teardrop shapes that are suggestive of the tears of compassion of Avalokiteshvara. The logo of the 20th anniversary and the ground floor pro project bears the colours of Manchester Buddhist sen Centre. We hope the design will symbolise the twinning of the two Sanghas across the UK and India, as much as the actual teams, if we can get them established. So, are we naive? Quite possibly. <laughs> Will we make mis mistakes? Most definitely. Probably quite a lot of them. <laughs> but we have a passion, a passionate belief, that learning from these mistakes can foster a creative dharmic framework of reference for a team-based right livelihood. A business that can respond to the changing needs of the Sangha and the local communities. We hope one day to have a viable business if we can find and facilitate all the supportive conditions we need for this business to prosper and survive. It may not even work, but we're giving it a go. There's a quote by a somewhat controversial and radical film producer called Paso Lini. Some of you would have heard of him, I'm sure. In an interview he shared with a journalist, he said, to be effective, it has to be great, absolute and absurd. Common sense never stopped the situation. To which the journalist replied, to describe the situation, one could say your films, writing, are like light filtering through dust, beautiful but hard to understand. Pasolini replied with this, thank you for the image of sunlight, but I ask for much less. I'm asking you simply to look around and see the tragedy. What is the tragedy? It is that there are no more human beings. There are only strange machines colliding with each other. And this tragedy starts with the universal, compulsory, perverted system of education that shapes all of us, from the so-called ruling class right down to the floor. It pushes us to the arena of having things, everything, at any cost. And I agree. The tragedy is that even though we have so many ways of communicating with each other, and for those of us in the Sangha, so much awareness, that we are still much of the time caught in a flux of activity that renders us like strange ma machines colliding into each other 
and perhaps hence the psychological despair and mental illness we have in our society. So what if explicitly setting up right livelihood is one way that the Sangha can influence this flux of busyness that prevents us from becoming more intimate with ourselves and with each other? that prevents us from getting to know the true nature of our minds and creates barriers to our getting closer to reality. What if business alliances made through Right Livelihood offer a viable alternative of working, of communicating in our local communities? And what if Right Livelihood just for maybe one person, becomes a flame to make that choice to visit this centre or an Indian Dhamma Trust project for the first time. And then we know what can happen. So at the moment, Makula has this vision and we have our precepts and system of practice to guide us. So we have the goal and we have the method to get there. The other aspects of the Eightfold Path, such as right effort, right speech, are already prominent, as is right emotion. All three of us come from different world, worldly working experiences. I've, for example, I've worked in teams as a nurse, both in the community and in hospital. So I'm to some degree f- familiar with the possible dynamics that can arise just from being human beings in a collective experience. How wonderful then to have our precepts and system of practice as guiding forces in the depths of what can be a human cauldron of personal desires, expectations and samskaras. It's very humbling and motivating. In Know Your Mind, the term asamprajanya defines a mental state that is lacking in attentiveness to the activities of body, speech and mind. It's a mental state not associated with carefulness. So team-based right livelihood is a fantastic opportunity to become more carefully aware of our habitual ways of expecting things to go just as we would like. And to become more fully conscious of our practice as a training ground to loosen our egos and to refine our sense of purpose in the world, society and Sangha. To hold this vision and purpose equally feels important. It holds us in the greater mandala of practice where dharmic vision and beauty are just as present as suffering and being of dharmic service. Recently, Bante was heard to share uh, an extract of this following poem, and I think it reflects this need for balance and right effort. It's called A Psalm for Life, and it is by Henry Longfellow. Tell me not in mournful numbers. Life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, 
and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest. And the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way. But to act that each t- tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting and our hearts, though stout and brave, still like bu- muffled drums are beating funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. Trust no future, however pleasant, let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, hearts within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men and women all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sand of time. Lives of great men and women all remind us we can make our lives sublime. We can and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, as it was. That poem was written in 1838. That was 53 years before Ambedkar was even born. And Bante was heard to recite that final stanza three times just recently. I think it symbolises that to talk of liberation in terms of social and spiritual revolution is still relevant, still necessary and points to the important purpose that we hold in the Sangha in this century to maintain this legacy of incredible inspiration, initiative and enterprise. It is easy in the face of so much tragedy and political unrest to feel disempowered as as individuals and to feel that that it is naive and idealistic to think about revolution. But this evening we have looked briefly at the lives of just two human beings from modest backgrounds that have created exactly that. With just their conviction and right vision. A revolution in each of their home countries as well as across the world. And to give you some idea of this, when Bante was staying in Kalampong in those early days, there was believed to be about 2,300 known Buddhists in India. Statistics in 2013 showed there now to be 10 million Buddhists. Here in the UK, when Bante started the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, there were believed to be approximately 19 practicing 
Buddhists in the UK. The 2012 consensus states that there are now 250,000. And of course, both in the UK and India, not all of those Buddhists are from what we now call the Triratna Buddhist community and order. But in India, we are the largest organised community of Dharma practitioners who are systematically and methodically propagating the Dharma. So to conclude, we've explored the fortuitous meeting and example of Bhante and Dr. Ambedkar, how we are one Sangha with a swathe of different threads of cultures and social pressures. How this gives us a complex but interesting and even exciting cloth of opportunities for engaging with each other as Sangha and within our local communities. We've been introduced to the Indian Dhamma Trust and to the first steps of a t-shirt design and production business by the Manchester Right Livelihood Cooler. Our vision is for this to be is for this to progressively become a deepening spiritual transformative practice, not only for the cooler, but for Manchester Sangha as a whole. We have in essence been looking at what being Buddhist can mean for us in 2016 and beyond. And the legacy that we in turn are now creating for future generations of the Sangha. I hope it has been useful. And uh, please, if you have any queries or even any ideas about contributing to this t-shirt business, or just want to get involved in the cooler, do just get in touch. The best way at the moment is through the reception. Just leave a note for myself, Michael, Sandeep. We will at some point get a web page, but at the moment that's the best way. <laughs> so, um, so that just leaves me to say thank you for listening so attentively.